Our passage today is found in Acts chapter 8. It's going to be on page 917 in the Pew Bibles. If you'd like to turn there, I would encourage you to see it with your own eyes. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Here's what it says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now this passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Ozotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Almighty, Eternal, and Merciful God, Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, open and illuminate our minds this morning by the power of Your Spirit so that we may understand rightly what You have written for us. And Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you conform our lives to what we understand in your word so that we may be pleasing to you. We pray this to you, Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. We're continuing our series this morning entitled Growing in Grace. And we've been looking throughout this series at different ways that God grows us in Jesus Christ. How do we grow in our faith? We've looked at many different things. Hearing the word preached. We looked last week the Lord's Supper. Josh took us through reading scripture and how that transforms us by the power of the Spirit. And we're going to continue this morning and we're going to be looking at baptism. How, how does God use baptism to grow us? And I want to begin this morning by asking you this question. What beliefs... What beliefs 
do you hold so tightly? Are you so certain of that you would die for them? Now, we don't live in a day and age in, here in America where this happens a lot. Obviously, it does across the world. But think about this. What doctrines of the Christian faith, what beliefs do you think are so important that if someone came to you and said, you must recant this belief or die, that you would hold fast and die? Maybe, maybe the deity of Christ. Maybe the doctrine of the Trinity. Maybe the fact that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The fact that salvation comes only by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Maybe you would die for these. Do you consider them so important that you would rather die than deny these? But, but dying for a belief is actually the easier way to go. What about this? What beliefs would you suffer for? I mean, dying is easy. You just die, and then you're dead. And then you're with Christ in heaven. But suffering. What beliefs would you suffer for? What beliefs would you spend years and years in prison for? Many of our brothers and sisters across the world are imprisoned for their beliefs in the exact same things that we believe. Would you join them if it came down to it? I suspect most of us would. Maybe some of us wouldn't. Why? Because these beliefs are absolutely definition, definitional to our faith. This is what it means to be a Christian. But what about baptism? That's what we're talking about this morning. Would you be willing to suffer and or die for your belief about what the Bible teaches about baptism? Sounds kind of strange, right? But, but if an army came in this morning from New Life Presbyterian down the street, and, and they showed up and said... Give us your babies, we're going to baptize them, or you're all dead. Would you compromise? Now, that, that's a ridiculous scenario in our day and age. But not in history, oddly enough. We will never go to war with New Life Presbyterian. They're our friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. But, <laughs> as ridiculous as it sounds, in our day and age, things like this happened. I mean, would you die for your belief in baptism? I, I don't know. It's strange. I mean, come on, right? Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, we all believe different things about baptism. How can we even know what exactly is right? We will likely never face an angry, bloodthirsty mob of Presbyterians. Likely. There's a small chance. <laughs> a little too much wine and communion, they could be right over here. I don't know. <laughs> But our brothers and sisters in the past faced these kinds of things. And they were willing to suffer and die for what they believed about baptism. Do we have a picture of the lake? Okay, there it is. This is a picture of Lake Zurich in Zurich, Switzerland. Now, if you remember last week's sermon, we talked about one of the most well-known reformers. His name was Ulrich Zwingli. Okay, so the Reformation's happening in the 16th century. And Ulrich Zwingli defied the Roman Catholic Church at the risk of his own life. He actually ended up dying in battle against the Catholic army later in life. Because, why was he willing to risk this? Why was he willing to face the Roman Catholic Church? Because he found in the scriptures that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so he said, I will defy the Roman Catholic Church. And he led the Reformation here in Zurich. And he had a ton of followers. 
Now, one of those followers, his name was Felix Mons. You've probably never heard of him. Most people haven't. Now, Mons started following Zwingli, fully convinced of what Zwingli is teaching, that the Bible alone is the sole infallible rule for faith and practice. In other words, everything that we believe, we should get from the scriptures. Their contention was that Rome had added a bunch of stuff. So, Mons started following Zwingli, and he started reading the Bible for himself, which was a radical act back then. And as he read the Bible, something happened. He became convinced that infant baptism, which Zwingli and pretty much all the other reformers taught, was nowhere to be found in Scripture. And so Mons and some others began to openly tell people that they did not believe that infant baptism was biblical. In fact, they began to debate Zwingli, and this created some unrest in the city. And so eventually the city council, seeking to make peace, uh, said, let's, let's have an open debate between you guys and, and the other side, Zwingli. And so they did, and Zwingli won. I mean, he was kind of the, the guy. And so the city council condemned anyone who denied the validity of infant baptism. They said, you have to baptize your babies or we will arrest you. What would you do in that situation? Mons and his, his fellow believers in, in this Baptist doctrine said, we don't care. And so they got together in a house and they baptized all the adults. They, they said, this is what baptism is in the scripture. Even though we've been baptized as infants, we don't care. We want a real baptism, what the Bible teaches. And so they baptized each other. All of them were arrested. And on January 5th, 1527, Mons was loaded onto a boat, taken out into the middle of Zurich, Lake Zurich. They tied his hands behind his legs, and they gave him one last chance to recant his views on baptism. He said no, and they threw him into the lake. They, they mocked him. They said, you want a full immersion baptism? Here you go. And he died, executed, and he wasn't the only one. But, but why? Simply because he proclaimed that baptism is for those who have faith. Believers, not infants. He was willing to die. You can go to the next picture. That one, yeah. Maybe I put him in the wrong order. A similar fate befell another man around the same time named Fritz Erba. Fritz was a farmer in Germany uh, while Martin Luther's Reformation was going on. Similar story. Luther... Radical act translates the Bible from Latin, which no, none of the common people understood, into German so that the people could read it for themselves. And so Fritz Erba starts reading the Bible in German, and he, like Mons, becomes convinced that infant baptism is nowhere to be found in Scripture. And so he, he's found out by the city, and just like Mons, they order him to baptize his children. He says no. And so he's imprisoned. And this is where they put him. Now, this is the entrance to a 30-foot deep hole. That's all it is. It's just a 30-foot deep hole. That's where they put Fritz Erba. He lived there for eight years. In Germany, through the winter and summer and all that stuff. In darkness, freezing cold, hot in the summer. At any point, they would have released him if he simply said, You can baptize my children. Infant baptism is fine by me. But he wouldn't. He couldn't. And he eventually dies in this hole from what they euphemistically called prison sickness. 
all for his belief over baptism. Because they believed, as we believe, what the Bible teaches about baptism. This, this really is our heritage. But all this raises the question, what did they see in Scripture that led them to give their lives? Why were they so certain about what the Scriptures taught about baptism? And, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Much like last week, we're, we're simply going to see what does the Bible say baptism is? And then how does the Bible say that God uses it for our growth? What is baptism and how does God use it for our growth? So, what is baptism? Well, like last week, the Lord's Supper, first and foremost, baptism is an ordinance. It's an ordinance, which is just a fancy church word that we use to describe something, a ceremony, or a thing that has been ordained by Christ himself for the church to practice. An ordinance is a physical symbol or reminder of a spiritual reality. So there are two ordinances. We talked about one last week, the Lord's Supper. Remember we said it's a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. And baptism, same thing. Physical reminder of a spiritual reality. It gives us a, a visible picture of spiritual truths. These things are obvious. That's why everyone who calls themselves a Christian does both of these things. Every Christian, no matter what type they are, baptizes and has the Lord's Supper. They may have many differing views, but all the way from Catholics to the cults, everybody does them because it's clear in Scripture. So let's look at Matthew 28. This is where baptism is ordained by Christ. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Also known as the Great Commission. Here's what it says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. This is after Jesus' resurrection. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, there it is. This is where Christ ordains for us to practice baptism. Now, now the actual command in the text is make disciples. That, that's the imperative. We are to make disciples. And Christ makes, makes it very clear. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And what am I going to do with that authority? Make disciples. That is our mission as believers and as a church. But, but look at the text. Because making disciples is our mission. But what is part of that? How are we going to do that? Baptizing. Baptizing. Make disciples of all nations. How are we going to do that? Baptizing them and teaching them. Those are the two Operations. So we are to make disciples, and then, after we have made a disciple, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we are to teach them to observe the words of God. You can see the, the progression here. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them. So it's an ordinance. Baptism is an ordinance. Christ himself commanded us to do this. So when you see someone being baptized or when you think back to your baptism, you are taking part in something that Jesus Christ himself 
instituted. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. When, when the same way when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are taking part in something that Jesus Christ himself set up for us. To great honor. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not small things. They are big things. We should treasure them. And so baptism is an ordinance. Now, everyone, again, we're in, in agreement here. Everyone agrees in this. So Fritz, Ereba, Felix, Manns, Luther, Zwingli, all of them agreed that baptism was instituted by Jesus Christ. But what, once we go beyond this to what baptism means or how we are to practice it, that's where the differences come in. So secondly, so first is an ordinance. Secondly, baptism in the Bible is to be a full immersion Underwater, A full immersion underwater. In other words, when you're baptized, you're supposed to go all the way down into the water and all the way back up. This is clear throughout the scriptures, and we're going to see this. When someone is baptized, they should get really wet. Not just sprinkled, like this morning. Baptism is not a sprinkling. It's a full-on dunk. So, so let's look at this. How, how do we know this? Because again, you could go down the street to New Life Presbyterian, and they will tell you something different. Well, let's look to scripture. So there's a couple of ways we see this. Number one is linguistic. Linguistic. Language. So the word translated as baptize uh, in your Bible is the Greek word baptizo. That's where we get the word baptize from. It's kind of strange. But baptize, baptizo in Greek means to immerse, to soak in water. That's undebatable. No one really debates that. But even the sprinklers admit this. They just say, well, the mode's not that important. Um, But it is. Because immersion, number one, I mean, it's just the plain meaning of the word of Scripture, so we should follow that. But also, when we get to the symbolism, you're going to see that full immersion symbolizes much better what baptism means than sprinkling. So, linguistic. The word baptize means immerse. So that's why we should immerse. But two, there's a practical reason, or kind of what maybe we would call, um, when we observe the text, we can see that they were immersing people as they baptized them in the Bible. I want to show you some examples of this. So, Matthew 3.16. Jesus, this is what it says. And when Jesus was baptized, so this is the baptism of Jesus, immediately he went up from the water. Okay, so if you're sprinkled, you don't come up from the water, right? He went into the water, and he came up from the water. You don't need to come up out of the water if you just got your hair wet. We see the same thing in Mark's gospel. Mark 1.10, speaking of the same event. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So, Jesus, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, went down and up out of the water. Just observing the text. We saw the same thing in Acts 8 that we read earlier. Look at eight, uh, cha- uh, chapter 8 in Acts, verse 36. And remember what they said. And as they were going along the road, so Philip has shared the gospel with him. The Ethiopian eunuch has believed. And they're going along the road. And the eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And so that's what they do. Look at the language. They stopped the chariot. And they both went down into the water Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, and then they came up out of the water. Now think about this. 
a traveling convoy, traveling through the desert, which the text told us it is, would obviously be carrying water with them. But the eunuch waited until they saw a pool or a lake or some type of oasis to, to be baptized. Why? Because you need a lot of water to be immersed in it. So whatever water they were carrying with them was obviously not enough. So he sees the water and he says, look, there's water. Now I can get baptized. They go down and they come up. This, this is the pattern we see in scripture as we simply observe the text. Now, lastly, we can see this in John chapter 3, verse 23. This is speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist. Look what it says. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Why was he baptizing there? Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. So the text tells us that John picked where he was baptizing, where he would do his baptisms, because of how much water was available. He needed a lot of water to do what he was going to do, which was immerse people. If he's just giving a little sprinkle on each person's head, he doesn't need a lot of water. So, so those are the two arguments. Partially, obviously, these things could be dealt with in much more depth. Those are the two arguments for why full immersion is the biblical mode of baptism. This is how it should be done. This is why we do what we do as Baptists. But there is one, there's another reason why full immersion is the biblical mode, and that's kind of the theological reason. And as we describe further on in the sermon what baptism is, I want you to listen to the language that the Apostle Paul uses. And I think you'll be able to make the case in your own head for why immersion gives a better picture of that, namely death and resurrection, than sprinkling. This is what baptism is supposed to be a picture of. We'll see that clearly. And so let's, let's move to that. What is baptism? What is it supposed to represent? And why does full immersion represent this best? Well, we said earlier that baptism is an ordinance, right? And an ordinance, like I said, is a physical, something physical, a physical sign of a spiritual reality. So the question is, what spiritual reality does baptism represent? Well, the short answer is salvation. It represents salvation. Baptism represents and pictures salvation, or to put it in kind of the scriptural terms, the new birth. Baptist author John Hammett, I think, has a, a helpful way of categorizing the, the meaning of baptism into three terms. And so I'm going to use those as, as we go through. Uh, and he, he puts it this way. Baptism signifies identification, purification, and incorporation. And so, so we're going to look at those. We'll spend our, our most time on the first one uh, because this is kind of the biggest one. And again, there is so much more to be said on all of this. this. We're really just hitting the tip of the iceberg. But identification. So baptism signifies or symbolizes identification with Christ. Identification with Christ. To, to be baptized is to publicly proclaim that you are on Team Jesus. You stand with Christ. To be baptized is, is to proclaim, I have placed my faith in Christ, and I am now unified with him. My identity is now in Christ Jesus. I am no longer my own. I am his. This is why as you go through the book of Acts, and you should do this sometime. Go through the book of Acts and just read all the stuff about baptism. And I think you'll see the same thing. 
But as you see people get baptized in the book of Acts, it continually says this phrase. They were baptized into the name of Jesus. They were baptized into the name of Jesus. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. There's one example, Acts 10, 48. There's many. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Well, this phrase, in the name, it's not just a throwaway phrase. It doesn't just mean that they said Jesus when they baptized him. It's actually a a technical term back then that, that indicates a transferal of ownership. Communicates this idea. I am no longer my own. I no longer own my life. I'm no longer under the power of sin, death, and the devil. I am under the ownership of Jesus Christ. I am united to Christ. I identify with Jesus Christ. If you you look at the the way that the early church baptized, one of the things that was included in, in what they call baptismal formula, or what the believer will say as they're being baptized, is, I renounce Satan in all of his work. Because to be baptized is to go from darkness into life. That is what it symbolizes. Identification with Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul can use such strong language about baptism and place such importance on it in a text like Romans 6, which we heard earlier. Let me read again for you verse 1 through 4. Listen to what he's saying. So the Apostle Paul has just made the case in Romans 1 through 3 that all of humanity stands condemned before God. And then in chapters 3 and 4 and 5, he's made the case that salvation is found in Jesus Christ, purely by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. And so then in chapter 6, he begins with this question. Well, if it's all by grace, then let's keep sinning, right? God likes to forgive. I like to sin. This is great. That's, that's what he's talking about. And so he answers the question, but listen to how he, what he says. Now, you might expect this. If I asked you, why should we not keep sinning if God is graceful? If he's going to forgive our sin anyway, you might expect the Apostle Paul to say, well, because sin is really bad. Or, well, because sin is dishonoring to God. Or, well, because sin will ruin your life. That's why you shouldn't do it. It's not good for you. That's not what Paul says. Listen to what he says. This is important. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That, that, that phrase right there is the strongest Greek negative you can have. It, you could translate it like, God forbid. May it never be. What does he say after that? How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see that identification language. We can't continue in sin. We've died to sin and Christ Jesus has raised us to walk in newness of life. Christ Jesus died, therefore all those who are in him, identified with him, died with him. Christ Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, all who are in him by faith will be raised as well and have been raised to walk in newness of life. So, brothers and sisters, if your faith is in Christ, you have died to sin 
And you truly have been brought to spiritual life, to walk in the newness of this life. This is what baptism is a picture of. But, but, but this, is, this is important. Don't be confused by this. And this is where some people go wrong. Baptism doesn't do this to you. Baptism doesn't unite you to Christ. It's a picture of your union with Christ. Baptism doesn't save you. It's not a magical ceremony. It's an outward physical symbol of what has happened to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a magical ceremony. Think of it like a wedding ring, right? I've got mine here. Now, a wedding ring is an outward physical symbol of the covenant of marriage. But putting a wedding ring on doesn't make you married, right? If, if you were not married and you just went out and bought a wedding ring and put it on, that doesn't make you married. Just like just getting baptized doesn't make you saved. It doesn't make you in Christ. Wedding ring is a symbol that portrays that you are in a covenant. It conveys no power in and of itself. Same is true of baptism. It is a symbol that you are in Christ. Without a wedding, a wedding ring is meaningless. Without faith in Christ, baptism is meaningless. So don't be confused by the language that baptism saves you. It does not. Faith in Christ saves you. Baptism is a picture of what has happened to you. Without faith, baptism really is nothing more than just getting wet. And faith and baptism are always connected in the scriptures. Because baptism, like I've been saying, is a picture of your identification with Christ. How are you identified with Christ? Through faith. Baptism signifies your allegiance with Jesus Christ. So, faith comes first, and then faith is expressed in baptism. Baptism is the expression of faith in Christ. Paul makes this expressly clear in Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And this will become important in, in a little bit. So, so listen to what he says. Look at the connection between faith and baptism. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. He says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So how are you a son of God? Through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see the connection? You are sons of God. How? Through faith. Not through baptism. But then he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Why? That's the expression of faith that the New Testament gives us. So baptism is an expression of faith. Baptism is an expression of identification with Christ. It is a public portrayal. I am one with Christ. This is what Fritz Erba and Felix Mann saw in the scriptures that caused them to reject infant baptism. And this is what causes us as Baptists to reject infant baptism as a valid biblical practice as well. Do you see why? Did you catch it? If baptism is always linked to faith in Christ, then faith comes first and baptism follows. Well, who should be baptized then? Those who have faith in Christ. This rules out infants. And I'll put a disclaimer out there that we love the guys at New Life. Uh, we have many friends, brothers in ministry, who are Presbyterians. doesn't make them evil. We just think they're wrong, and they think we're wrong. But we're right, and they're wrong, just to let you know. 
And that's okay. It's okay that we disagree. It's, it's, a, it's what we call an in-house debate. So we're not casting them out of the kingdom because they're infant baptisms. But this is serious. We think they're wrong. We don't think that what they're doing is baptism. We love our gospel-believing Presbyterian, Lutheran, and Anglican brothers and sisters. We just don't let them near our babies. <laughs> Got to be careful. And don't go out on a boat with them into Lake Murray. <laughs> but, but, the Presbyterians will come back and they will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because they baptize adults as well. They say, well, yeah, baptism is an expression of faith. We just do it to babies as well. They'll say, they'll say circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. Baptism is the sign in the New Covenant. Since circumcision was given to babies, baptism should be given to babies as well. It's a very simplified, basic way that they argue for infant baptism. Now, they're right in a sense. Circumcision was, of course, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And it was given to babies. And they're right, even, that baptism is the sign of the New Covenant. Where do we disagree? In the New Covenant, you don't come in through physical birth. You come in through spiritual birth. In other words, by faith. What did Jesus say? You must be born again. And in Galatians 3.26, which we just looked at, how, did, how does one become a son of God? Through faith. Not through birth. Faith, then baptism. No faith, no baptism. Now, with that in mind, look at Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him, Jesus, you were also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. In the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here's another text. Baptism and faith are inextricably linked together. According to Paul, baptism is a circumcision. So there, there is an analogy between circumcision and baptism. It's a circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's a spiritual circumcision. Paul says a cutting off the body of the flesh. We saw that in Romans 6. Buried with Christ. Raised with Christ. How? Through faith. Through faith. Baptism is an expression of faith. It is an outward sign and symbol of a person who is in Christ through faith. Not through birth. Not through a physical birth. In fact, we would agree that babies are to be baptized. Spiritual babies. That's the imagery. That's where the, the continuity comes in. Those who come into the new covenant are of course to be baptized. But those who come in are those who come in by faith, not by physical birth. So baptism represents identification with Christ. But it also represents purification. Purification. Another way to put this is baptism represents uh, spiritual washing or cleansing. The forgiveness of sins. And again, baptism doesn't wash away your sins. It represents or symbolizes that your sin has been washed away. By faith in Jesus Christ. We see this in many texts. We could go many different places. But let's look at Acts 22, 
verse 16. Luke writes this, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now again, some people read this and say, Wow, so baptism is what washes away your sins. He says, be baptized and wash away your sins, right? But again, you have to look at the text and read the whole thing. What does it say? Wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's faith in Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Same thing here. Faith, then baptism. Faith, then baptism. And one thing that baptism represents is this. Purification, the washing away of sins. So as the water washes over you in baptism, you are reminded of the forgiveness that you have in Christ Jesus through faith. See the same thing in Acts 2.38. Peter says to them, so this is right after Peter has preached his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's He's basically told the Jews, you killed Jesus. He was the Messiah. They say, what must we do to be saved? In other words, how can God forgive us for this? Here's Peter's response. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a text that people will look at and say, See, baptism and forgiveness, you, you have, they're the same thing. No. Look at, look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Again, those who received his word were baptized. In other words, those who heard what Peter said and believed were baptized. That's what we're saying. Faith in Jesus, then baptism. Faith in Christ, forgiveness of sins, newness of life. Those are all spiritual things that happen, and then they're expressed in baptism. In faith in Christ, they're forgiven of their sin, they were purified. And in baptism, they express their faith and their purification in a physical way. That is what baptism is. Our forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ, not in baptism. The thief on the cross was never baptized, and yet he went to be with Christ in paradise. So again, baptism is a symbol of identification and purification. And lastly, it's a symbol of incorporation. So identification with Jesus Christ, purification by Jesus Christ, and incorporation into Jesus Christ. In other words, baptism is an outward symbol that a person is now a part of the body of Christ, the church. There's no such thing in scripture as a lone wolf Christian, and baptism is no different. It's not a ceremony primarily about the individual, but about the church. Baptism is done by the church and represents a person being brought into the church, the body of Christ. It's not just between you and Jesus. It is, but it's not just between you and Jesus. It's between you, Jesus, and all of us. That's why we do it here. It's something that takes place in the gathered assembly of believers. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And then later in verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In other words, baptism symbolizes the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. The spiritual unity that we have in Jesus Christ. We were all baptized with the same baptism. Paul says there's only one baptism. There's one God. There's one baptism. There's one faith. We are unified in Christ. Baptism is a picture of that. When we see someone baptized, it's us saying they're one of us. We are united to them. So, baptism is an ordinance in which a believer in Christ is fully immersed in water, brought up, symbolizing identification with Christ, purification by Christ, and incorporation into Christ's body. According to the scriptures, that is what baptism is. Now, how does God use baptism to grow us in grace? That's the second question. Some of this may be obvious, but for the person being baptized, I guess you'd call them the baptizee, their faith is strengthened as they publicly proclaim their faith in Christ to everyone in attendance. Right? Our, Our faith is always strengthened when we spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And baptism is a unique way for a new believer to do that. They get to stand in front of everyone and in front of the congregation say, I identify with Jesus Christ. It's a physical symbol of the gospel itself. The person being baptized stands in the water and shares their testimony, bears witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and to the spiritual things that have happened to them, the spiritual birth that they have had. They receive the joy of testifying of Christ. So God uses that in their life. But not only that, in baptism, a believer receives confirmation from the body of Christ that they are in Christ. So, since baptism is by a church, we only baptize people that we think are believers. And so when a person is baptized, now this this is how it should be, not all churches do this. But when a church baptizes someone, it's a putting their stamp of approval on this person. Hey, from what we can tell, this person is in Christ. They are on team Jesus. They are a part of our body. Additionally, there's the simple joy that obedience to Christ's commands brings a believer. We receive joy when we obey Christ. Baptism is commanded of everybody who believes. And so when we follow through and submit ourselves to baptism... We're obeying the words of Jesus Christ himself, and we receive joy from that. But ultimately, the way that God uses baptism to grow the person being baptized is by reminding them of the gospel. Fallen in Adam, sinful beyond repair. You were dead in your sins, Paul says in Ephesians. Under the power of Satan. You stood rightly condemned before God outside of Christ. But in his mercy and grace, God sent his Holy Spirit upon you and you were born again. Born anew. You're spiritually reborn. He took out your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh and faith came alive in your heart. You believed 
You trusted in Christ. Where you once rejected Christ, now you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've been brought into union with Christ. Made one with Christ. So that all the things that He has are now yours. You've been adopted into the family of God. You've been dead to sin now. And alive in Christ Jesus. His death on the cross has satisfied God's wrath towards sin in your place. Your sins were forgiven. His righteousness has become your righteousness. So that now when God looks at you whose faith is in Christ, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Eternal life is yours now and will be yours forever when you are resurrected with him at the end of the age. Not only that, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms as Ephesians 1 tells us. You've become a co-heir with Christ Jesus. You've been brought into a new family, the body of Christ, with whom you will dwell now and forever directly in the presence of the King. Christ has claimed you as his own. And when you are baptized, you are reminded of all of this because baptism is a picture of this. And when you dwell on the gospel, when you understand the gospel, when you are reminded of the gospel, when you Think on it every day. Who you are in Christ. What you have in Christ Jesus. The Spirit uses this to grow you in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not Christianity 101. It's all there is. We don't move on from the gospel once we're saved. But the person being baptized isn't the only one who receives this benefit. The, the gathered church receives this benefit as well because we, as we all observe someone standing in the water, as we hear them testify, as we hear what God has done in their lives, how God has brought them from death to life, as God has poured out his mercy on grace and Christ on them, our faith is strengthened. We remember our baptism. We remember when God saved us. We're reminded the glorious truths of the gospel. And we grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's point in Romans 6. This is what he's saying. Don't, don't you know what is true about you? You shouldn't keep sinning because how can you? You're dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. When we watch someone be baptized, we're reminded of that truth. We've died with Christ and, be, and risen again in newness of life. As we consider our baptism, we are reminded of the gospel and thereby strengthened in our spirits to fight against the sin in our lives because we are no longer enslaved to it. This is how God grows us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in baptism. May we experience that grace often here at Del Cerro. But, but let's, let's be honest. Let's think about this for a minute. If we are to receive this benefit, if we are to grow in grace through baptism as a church, we need people to baptize. We have to baptize people. It's been a while. It's been a while since we've had a baptism here. I don't know when the last one was. But if you've been baptized, we need to go back to Matthew 28. Our mission is to make disciples and baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so let's get to work. 
Let's work toward that end. Let's act toward that end. Let's pray toward that end. Let's go out into our city, into our neighborhoods, into SDSU, wherever we are, and make disciples so that we can baptize people. We cannot experience the blessing of baptism as a church just because we have a baptistry. We got to use it. We need, to bap- pe- we need to baptize people. We need to make disciples. Let's pray towards that end. Amen? And lastly, maybe there is someone here. I've known people like this. You've been a believer. Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time. Your faith is in Christ, but you've never been baptized. Right? Maybe you feel embarrassed because you've been a believer for so long, but you've never been baptized. Wherever you are this morning, if your faith is in Christ and you have not been baptized, let's talk. There's no better time than now. Experience the blessing that is baptism and allow us to partake in that blessing as well. We have a little, we kind of do a little class that we go through. So I'd love to meet with you and talk about baptism if that is you. I would encourage you, be faithful to Christ. He has commanded you to be baptized. Follow through. God will use your baptism to grow you in grace. And he will use your baptism to grow us in grace as well. And if you're here this morning and you've been baptized, use this morning as a chance to think back to your baptism. Use this morning as a chance to remember who you are in Christ Jesus and what he has given you in his gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,